Welcome to Songcraft. I'm Scott B. Bomar. And I'm Paul Duncan. Songcraft is the show that brings you in-depth conversations with the creators of great songs, from the ones you know and love to the ones you should know. Be sure to subscribe to the show via iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts, and visit us at songcraftshow.com. You're listening to I Run To You, a number one hit for Lady Annabellum, written by our guest on this episode of Songcraft, Tom Douglas. After a successful career in commercial real estate, Douglas scored his first charting single as a songwriter when Colin Ray took Little Rock to the top of the charts in 1994. Little Rock earned Tom a CMA Song of the Year nomination and marked the start of a long string of top ten singles that has stretched for more than two decades. His catalog of hits includes The Gift for Jim Brickman, Love's the Only House and God's Will for Martina McBride, Grown Men Don't Cry, My Little Girl, Let It Go, Southern Voice, and Meanwhile Back at Mama's for Tim McGraw, Something Worth Leaving Behind for Leanne Womack, I Run to You and Hello World for Lady Annabellum, I Got a Car for George Strait, Raise Em Up for Keith Urban and Eric Church, and Miranda Lambert's recording of The House That Built Me, which was nominated for two Grammy Awards and won Song of the Year honors from the Country Music Association, the Academy of Country Music, and the Nashville Songwriters Association International. Additionally, his songs have been recorded by Alabama, Garth Brooks, Bucky Covington, Blake Shelton, Randy Travis, Brooks and Dunn, Trisha Yearwood, Kenny Chesney, Brett Eldridge, Luke Bryan, Reba McIntyre, Carrie Underwood, and many others. Nearly a dozen of Tom's songs have won BMI Performance Awards. He is a Golden Globe and Oscar nominee. He has been nominated for four Grammy Awards and was inducted into the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame in 2014. Well, you know, this is the moment in the podcast when normally we would spend some time talking about our interview subject and and our thoughts. Um, And people hear from us a lot throughout the entire interview. But I want to hear from our listeners. Yeah, you know, we get emails from you guys and Facebook messages. And uh, now we want to broaden that conversation a little further. We've recently activated our Twitter account. So you can find us at Songcraft Show. And uh, that's a great way to keep up the conversation with the listeners. Um, let us know what you guys think of the show and and uh, continue to interact with us uh, in that way. And also uh, let us know your ideas if there are guests that you would like to uh, hear us talk with on Songcraft in the future. Yeah, and we really only want positive feedback. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, we're very fragile. Yeah, if you have a complaint, uh, just go ahead and uh, put that in a, a letter and put it in an envelope <laughs> and just send that to uh, the North Pole. Yeah, and or a, uh, in a bottle. Put it in a bottle <laughs> and put it in the ocean because we actually live not far from the ocean, so we'll probably <laughs> we'll get, totally it. get it. Um, so today we talked to Tom Douglas. Yeah, I mean, boy, talk about a guy who has brought poetry uh, to commercial country music yeah, in totally. a very unique way. Um, this is not your run-of-the-mill, uh, average, three-chord songwriter. No, yeah, poetry not only in lyric but in melody as well. I mean, I hear things there that, that normally you wouldn't hear in country music. They're a little more refined, a little more sophisticated. Yeah, definitely, yet still maintain that very easygoing, conversational style that that uh, he does in such a disarming way. Yeah. You know, uh, it, when I've been in songwriting sessions over the last, you know, several years, I feel like the song that I keep hearing people reference and like, oh, I wish we could write something like this is The House That Built Me. Yep. Yeah, That's it's just, like the gold standard. Yeah, it's, it's become an absolute standard, and with good reason. That's a heck of a song. Yeah. And you, you actually have written some with Tom. 
Yeah, in in my in my previous life as a songwriter, uh, <laughs> Tom and I wrote a few songs together. Um, most of them were huge hits. Yeah, right. Of course. Um, with my mom and my grandmother. Uh, <laughs> but no, Tom and I actually we we wrote some songs together. We wrote one in particular called "Keep on Driving" that was yeah. on my my album. Uh, uh, Radio Drive was the name of that album. I Plug. couldn't even remember because it's <laughs> it was so successful. That even right. I am a little fuzzy on the details. Right. Um, but no, we wrote this song, Keep on Driving. And the thing about Tom is he has this style where words kind of like s- spill out of him in a way. Mm. And I think that might have been the first time he and I wrote a song together. And I was kind of sitting there going, what is happening right now? Like, what is this guy? It blew my mind. He has no regard for the rules no. and the the meter and and how the, the words should fall because I was all twisted up and I was, you know, thinking a song has to be this way. Right. And then by the end of it, I, I look at the song and I'm like, I would have never written that song by myself. Right. Um, and this dude is a genius. <laughs> I mean, I was like, uh, he was such a genius. I couldn't even see the genius at work until after it was done. And I was like blown away after the fact. That's genius. Yeah. He's amazing. Well, let's hear from him. Tom, welcome to Songcraft. Thank you. Good to be here. Now, when I was a kid, I took piano lessons and my folks would like make me practice every single day and my mom would put the little egg timer on the piano and I would have to, uh, you know, to, to practice till the time was done. It felt like an eternity. Um, and I understand that you took piano lessons as a kid growing up uh, in Atlanta. And I'm wondering if it was that same kind of sense of dread for you or if you just kind of took to it right out of the gate and just had this musical thing happening. Well, I think uh, I, I share a similar experience with you it was <clears throat> I didn't enjoy it which is a shame um, uh, I, I guess maybe I was in the third third and fourth grade when I took and it was Miss McFarlane and I would go over to her house and it you know she was a, a, a you know a lovely but a spinster lady and she was kind of a church lady and she was she was very uh, rigorous in terms of the amount of practice that she demanded and I I didn't really fulfill her requirements, so <laughs> we, we decided just to part as friends probably in the fourth grade, which was, right. I think, much to the dismay of my my parents because they had bought a Hobart M. Cable upright piano for my, uh, for my prodigy. But I, I did come back to it a little bit later in life. Now, when you were a kid, what was some of the music that you first got excited about? I... Uh, I remember music was certainly a big part of our household. My father really loved music and was really very artistic. Uh, He was a steel salesman for 45 years, but in his heart of hearts, he he really was a a very artistic person, loved to sing and loved harmony, and he kind of played some piano and the ukulele. So there was always music around. Right. I've thought about this a lot lately, uh, and he he really he you know he talked a lot about songs, huh. not really so much the artist, but just the beauty of a song or what right. a song means. And right, right. I mean, I remember literally uh, going to a record store and literally, I mean, I, I don't know how old I was. Maybe I was like five or six, but I remember getting the the single. Of, of Hound Dog. Really? Wow. And, uh, you know, kind of playing that on the, uh, you know, the little 
the little record player, the portable yeah. record player that we had. So, I mean, that, that was probably 1958, 1959. Yeah, yeah. So you were, your ears were opening up pretty yeah, early. Yeah, they were opening up pretty early. Yeah. Well, when you first became aware that there was actually, you know, such a thing as a songwriter, um, who were some of the songwriters that, that caught your attention or impressed you with their songs? Well, you know, we, uh, we used to watch, uh, well, this will be so old that no one will remember it, but, uh, there was a, a, a show on, uh, maybe it was on the weekend, maybe on Sunday night called Mitch Miller. And it was, uh, Mitch Miller was kind of a big band director and he would always have, you know, different artists, different vocalists, but I mean, they really always had great songs and he would talk about the songs and then, of course, the Ed Sullivan show, and you know, it's, it's so cliche at this point, but I mean, the Beatles really did, you know, they set a generation in motion. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I, I really remember that. Um, you know, I remember the songs of Hank Williams, uh, even though he was kind of long gone, uh, but you know, his songs lived on, and my dad really liked his songs, loved Christopherson's songs, and yeah. Um, you know, that we didn't realize it at the time, but loved the Glenn Campbell songs that he was singing and, you know, later to find out those were Jimmy Webb. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. You know, it was always a, you know, the, the distinctive of the song. Well, your path to a professional songwriting career was quite a bit different than some folks we talked to who left home as teenagers for a life of music in that you went to college and then you went on and you got your MBA from Georgia State University in 1977. Did you ever kind of feel torn about, you know, one part of you really wanting to follow your musical passion versus that other part of you uh, maybe thinking it would be the smart thing to do to pursue a more stable career, you know? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I mean, we're all products of our, you know, home environments. Sure. And we're so affected by our families and our parents. Yeah. My parents were children of the depression my father was born in 1911 wow and my mother was born in 1917 so they were older when they had me right but children of the depression uh you know their their focus in life is really uh, security right so uh, education and job security were the preeminent uh you know that that really is what characterized our household. Right, so right. You, you got a good education and you got a job and you stuck with it. And I really did. I mean, I tried to do that. I, you know, my parents had made a great sacrifice to, you know, send me to college and graduate school, and I really wanted to honor their sacrifice by yeah. getting a you know blue suit and a red tie and a black suburban and right. you know. Smoke big cigars and close big deals. I really did want to be that guy. Just and I tried. I mean, I sold. Uh, I was in real estate. I sold television advertising. Um, uh, you know, finally, it was at age twenty-seven that I finally ran away from home in Atlanta and came to Nashville <laughs> right. for the first time. Now I understand that you went into the advertising field for several years. And then you quit that job after a while to kind of go back and pursue music. What was it that kind of led you at that point to make that decision? Well, I was I was 27. I was not married, and I you know I I mean I was truly haunted by the the music. I was haunted by the songs. I had written songs since I was 13. Huh. Yeah, and uh, 
I mean, I was very always very poetic and right. assumed that the way that I looked at life is the way that everybody else looked at life, only to find out that's not the case the older <laughs> you get. But, I mean, so I, I, I just, I, I could not shake it. I really tried. And, you know, I was writing songs, and finally I just thought, you know, the, the call of Nashville is like a, you know, it's like a, a siren, you know, like a, a beautiful uh, mermaid or a woman on the right. rocks, and you're the right. ship out at sea, and you're slowly being called in yeah. to, the, uh, to the allure of the danger. And, uh, <laughs> so I finally, I finally succumbed and came to Nashville and just loved it. Yeah. And I was here four years and, and just loved everything about it, but I didn't get anything going. When you first came to town at that point, you know, did you have in your mind like a, a set of goals or this is, this is what I wanted to get done when I get there? Well, I, I did not, which is probably part of the problem. Uh, I, I, I there was a, a, pretty famous publisher in Atlanta, Bill Lowry. And I went to Mr. Lowry and I convinced him to let me pitch his catalog in Nashville the first time. His, his songs had never been pitched. And he'd had, I mean, he had a glorious uh, career already. He'd had songs on the first Meet the Beatles album. He'd had Sinatra cuts. Uh, he had Joe South as a writer. And yeah. I mean, it was, I mean, he was, he was a real publisher. But it never had any representation, so I, I my goal was just to get to Nashville, <laughs> right? And he he supported me for probably the first year, and then you know, other people supported me. Uh, yeah, but I did not have a plan. I was just so happy to be in Nashville; it almost didn't matter. Yeah, yeah. You know, working for Bill Lowry and uh, being around that song catalog, what effect did that have? on your instincts as a songwriter and what really makes a good song? Well, you know, when you're, when you're pitching someone else's songs and I was pitching, you know, songs that had been, uh, uh, you know, celebrated in other genres and we're trying to cast them in country music, right. which didn't work. But, but just here being around, uh, those songs, I mean, you, it's almost like osmosis. You, you have to absorb, you know the beauty of you know old songs like uh you know well you know rose garden or right, sure. uh you know be young be foolish be happy or yeah. you know just the list goes on it, it's intimidating at one point in the sense that there's a part of you that thinks why should i ever try to write a song if <laughs> i can't write a song like that I mean, yeah I, I still feel like that most days, but it doesn't stop me from writing another song. <laughs> right. Were you able to get any of your, I know you didn't have any hits, but were you able to get anything cut in that, that 1980 to 84 period? In I Nashville? was, I was basically writing for hire. I had, uh, uh, made, uh, an association with a guy that, that had a kind of a Christian music label. And, uh, we were really just kind of churning out you know, some of them were custom projects. Some of them were, uh, you know, they, they were, I guess the most notable person was Joe English, who was Paul McCartney's drummer in the first iteration right, of right. Wings. Yeah, he was, sure. He was on that label, and we were writing huh. songs for kind of Joe English and right. uh, and some of those guys. So I was doing some things in Christian music, but honestly, I was just, I was writing a lot. It was great experience because, I, I mean, I literally, I was writing you know, a song or two a day. Wow. And so it was, they, the songs honestly weren't that good, but it was right. good practice. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, as you say, that first four year stint in Nashville, you didn't really get anything going. Um, so you, you moved to Dallas, Texas to go back to the more stable career concept, went into commercial real estate. Um, and so here you are, you, you, you've done your Nashville thing. Now you're, you're in Dallas, you're kind of working this typical, you know, straight job, so to speak. Um, and I understand that you actually didn't even write any songs for, for several years. I'm wondering what was it that kind of reawakened that spark after you'd been away from it for a while? Well, I mean, I, I, you know, I tell people I wasn't writing songs. I mean, the, the truth is, you know, I've, I have written songs really since I can remember. Right. Uh, but I mean, like officially I wasn't, but I was always doing it in my mind. Um, but uh, I think I had gotten myself into a quandary, which, um, and the quandary is, was that I had put so much pressure on myself of, you know, trying to write hit songs, mm-hmm. run, write songs that people would like, sure. that I had really quenched my creative flow. Huh. And, uh, and it was it was it was a real conflict. I mean, I had this tremendous passion. I had you know a modicum of talent, but uh, you know it was just it was it was really it was a conflict. I mean, and I remember one day I was in Dallas and I was a real estate broker and I uh, I leased space in shopping centers and mm-hmm. I was starting at one end of a horseshoe of a shopping center and it was you know 104 degrees in Dallas in August. And I was going into, into these different stores in the shopping center. Right. I'm Tom Douglas. I lease the shopping center down the road. If you have any real estate needs, I'll be glad to help you. Yeah. So I was having that audible conversation in the back of my mind. I was having this conversation with God, which is, if you've given me this desire and this talent um, and this passion, you know, am I just going to go through life, you know, warped and bitter and jaded that I don't have any you know, that, that I can't find any kind of success. With right. It. And I mean, really, it was like a spiritual epiphany. God said, you know, you've chosen to to worship the creation, which is the song, and you've not, you're not worshiping the creator of the song. So you mm. can choose which you will, which you will worship. Huh. Um, and it was, it was, it was startling. Uh, and I was so, uh, I guess, shocked by that event. I mean, to me, it was almost a, a burning bush event to use right. a, uh, a Moses analogy. Yeah. But, uh, I thought, you know, uh, I wanted, it, it, I was miserable. I said, well, that's not working. So I literally, I, in my mind, I really tried to destroy the, the creation, which is really the song that right. I worshiped and kind of turn my heart back towards God. Right. And, and, and sure enough, uh, I, I felt, I felt uh, a real relief when huh. I did that. And so in a way, you're almost able to kind of let go of all that baggage yeah. of, of chasing the the elusive head. And, and you know, it's so funny how in life, when we come to those places of peace with something or being able to yeah. let go, that's when we wind up getting what we thought it was we wanted in a, in a different way. Um, and of course, for you, I mean, the song that changed everything was Little Rock. Um, right. which you, you wrote by yourself and it went on to become your first 
charting single when Colin Ray cut it, took it to number two on the Billboard chart in 1994, uh, eventually earned a nomination for, for CMA Song of the Year. Not bad for a first uh, right. <laughs> charting single out of the gate. I think I'm on a roll here in Little Rock I'm solid as a stone, baby, wait and see I got just one small problem here in Little Rock Without you, baby, I'm not me Tell us how you, how you wrote that song and how... Colin wound up cutting it. Well, it was as a result of this kind of, you know, epiphany event that I regained just my my joy and my love for the creative process, the gift of creation at all. And, you know, it was probably a year after that, you know, just kind of being a work in progress that uh, I sat down one morning at, uh, at a grand piano and uh, I said, I can, you know, write anything I want today. Why don't I just tell the truth? So I felt like I was always starting over and over and over. Uh, I was 40, 40, maybe 40 at the time. And, you know, I had two children, one on the way. But I never felt like I had, you know, really any traction. So I just told a song about a guy that's always starting over. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. it's a metaphor. Sure, um, right. And, uh, uh I, you know, just did a little piano vocal of it. And I always joined songwriter associations wherever I lived, Atlanta, Nashville, Dallas, and, you know, Austin. And I was in Austin in the summer of 93, and I reconnected with Paul Worley, whom I had known as a guitar player uh, when I lived in Nashville the first time. So that was, you know, 10 years earlier. And at this time, he'd risen to prominence in Nashville. He was an executive at Sony Publishing and was a producer. And he signed me to Sony Publishing. I gave him a cassette of some songs yeah. at a seminar in Austin. Uh, he signed me to Sony Publishing, and he was producing Colin Ray, and he got Colin to record Little Rock. Yeah. You never know when those relationships from 10 years right. ago are going to crop back up. Well, yeah. I mean, I had really mistakenly you know, assumed that my time in Nashville was you know, a mistake, and I'd wasted my time. Yeah. You know, only that we do ourselves such disservice when we think like that. I mean, I, I I now see, you know, how God used all those relationships that I'd made in those first four years. It just, you know, they they, they had a long seed time. They didn't yeah. come to fruition until really ten years later. Yeah, yeah. Well, and you had additional success when Colin Ray took "Love Remains" to number twelve in nineteen ninety six. And then Jim Brickman had a number three adult contemporary hit with The Gift, which you guys wrote together that following year. Now, The Gift actually featured Colin Ray and Susan Ashton as guest vocalists, and that song won a Dove Award for Pop Contemporary Song of the Year. All I want is to hold you forever. All I need is you more every day. You see. So it's 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 starting to happen, you know. Right. It's all coming together. But um, you didn't decide to pack up and head back to Nashville again until you kind of already had these three things going. Um, because of your 
experience in the past, did you have hesitation about making that move back? In other words, kind of like, is this, is this real? Is this gonna, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, I had a healthy mistrust for, uh, for Nashville. Yeah. And I still do. I think, I don't think that's so bad. Nashville right. is like a, uh, it's like a beautiful pit bull that, that, that it's a, you pet it and it looks really charming. Then all of a sudden one day it can, it can reach up and, uh, and take a big bite out of you. So it's, uh, it, yeah, I think you have to hold Nashville at an, at an arm's length. Yeah. But yeah. yeah, I didn't move here until four years after Little Rock. And, yeah. Uh, we yeah. Moved, moved my family here in 97. Well, and, you know, turns out that was the right move. You had a, a top 40 hit with Leaving October by Sons of the Desert in 1998, uh, followed the next year by Martina McBride's Love's the Only House, which was a, a number three country chart hit, fell just shy of the pop top 40. song has this kind of very direct kind of anthemic quality that reminds me maybe it's kind of the harmonica in it but it reminds me of Bruce Springsteen in a way mm -hmm. it's got that kind of every man simplicity yet it's profound in what it's saying um, and I'm wondering is is Bruce Springsteen an influence on you yeah Springsteen you know I mean I grew up I'm sure everybody feels this way but I, I, I grew up I think in the golden era of of artists, uh, you know, I grew up with Springsteen and Jackson Brown and Bob Dylan and James Taylor, uh, you know, Carol King. I mean, I, I grew up really influenced by all those greats, and you know, I still am. I'm yeah, heavily influenced by the, you know, by the, but particularly the, you know, the singer songwriter uh, aspect of you know of all those guys. You know, yeah, I'm leaving. You know all. I'm leaving Elton John and the Eagles out. Yeah. But um, yeah, it's. I mean, the 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 form of that song is is very, uh, you know, is very kind of Dylan esque, Springsteen esque, where you've got these, you know, different vignettes all mm -hmm. revolving around really a, a two line chorus. Love's the only yeah. house big enough for all the pain in the world. Love's the only house. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. I love songs like that because yeah. you can you can you can get a lot of information in. Right, right, yeah, and that's a great one. Um, well, in uh, two thousand, you scored a number fifteen hit with Yankee Gray's recording of another nine minutes. Um, but I actually want to ask you about another song from that year that wasn't a big hit, um, which is "Nothing Catches Jesus by Surprise," which you wrote with Waylon Jennings. The way you caught my eye in Paris. Tennessee Selling seduction I'm seduced We sell a war And we sell a truce Ain't it the truth Baby just close 
catches Jesus by surprise. Um, Waylon Jennings, to me, right off the top of my head, does not seem like an obvious co-writer for for Tom Douglas. But I really like that song, you know. Yeah. And, and it's like one of these things where you think, would this work? And the 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 end product is something really cool. Um, how did you and, and Waylon wind up getting together? And what was kind of the the story behind that song? Well. Uh... Harlan Howard, uh, who was really, you know, the dean of songwriters when I came to Nashville in the, uh, you know, in the 90s and 90, um, but he was very kind to me and really embraced me when I first started coming to Nashville. And Harlan Howard was a real character, uh, you know, married five times, you know, you would meet him at 1030 in the morning by 1130 if the song wasn't finished. It was too bad because you were going to be at a bar drinking white Russians. <laughs> uh, you know, he had a brass nameplate at, at each nice. bar in town. Right. And he was, you know, he was, an, I think, an orphan. You know, had worked at a GM assembly line. Wow. He had, you know, it, you know, I mean, he was just, he was a character. Almost right. like some, something out of a Jack Kerouac novel. <laughs> uh, so anyway, but he and I were friends and... He introduced me to Waylon Jennings, and he thought that Waylon and I would uh, be compatible because Waylon loved Jimmy Webb, huh. whom I loved. Yeah. Um, and Jimmy Webb, you know, referred earlier, wrote all those Glenn right. Campbell songs. Wichita Lineman and all that, yeah. So, um, you know, I was a piano player, and he, I don't know, Waylon, uh, uh, Harlan just thought, you guys ought to try it. And it's, yeah. it's awfully intimidating to... To meet those guys, the truth of the matter is, uh, the great artists and the great writers, when you when you you close the door, they all their ego is left outside the door. They have such respect for the writing yeah. and for the you know the sanctity of the song that they don't bring any of that in there. So it was honestly, even though it was Waylon Jennings, it was still just a couple of guys. Uh, you know, talking about a song. That's cool. Well, your first number one single on the Billboard chart came in 2001 with Tim McGraw's recording of Grown Men Don't Cry, which you co-wrote with Steve Seskin. I pulled into the shopping center and saw a little boy wrapped around the legs of his mother. Like ice cream melting, they embraced years of bad decisions running down her face. All morning I'd been thinking my life so hard And they wore everything they owned Living in a car I wanted to tell them it would be okay But I just got in my Suburban And I, I drove away and I don't know why they say grown men don't cry One of the things that I really like about your approach to fitting lyrics to melody is that you have this gift for kind of unspooling these long lyrical lines that are kind of unpredictable and and off-center sometimes, and you don't seem to be concerned with having everything sort of line up and, and fit just perfectly, which to me is kind of the mark of Tom Douglas songs that makes them really cool. Um, how do you think that particular style developed for you? Because it's pretty unique. Well, you know, I mean, uh, it, it's, it's, 
It's really, uh, I, it's not that I'm uh, trying to be unique. It's, it's just, you know, it's, it's, it's really the way I hear it. I am, I am really not very concerned with, uh, with form. I am much more concerned with content, only mm. to find later that the brilliant Stephen Sondheim, you know, says, let content dictate form, less is more, God is in the details, all in the service of clarity. It's Stephen Sondheim. Yeah. But but uh, it made me feel better when I saw his, you know, his kind of his his rules for lyric writing, particularly in that, you know, if it needs to be if one verse is six lines and the next one's 12, if that, you know, that I'm, I'm just more I, I'm more much more interested in the story than I am, you know, the form of yeah. the story. Yeah. So, um, you know. I've heard people say that. I've never really thought about it because it's just, you know, it's just kind of what I do naturally. Yeah. yeah. But I, I, I do collaborate with a lot of people that are, I mean, some people are like literally, you know, each word has to fit on each beat, which right. is honestly very difficult for me. Yeah. Because it, it takes a great discipline. Yeah. Yeah. I just like the free form. I'm yeah. More conversational. Sure. Well, I think it takes a certain amount of boldness that I really admire and respect. Um, because there's some of your huge hit songs that the the verses you're thinking like, oh, is he gonna be able to get in the the, <laughs> the words before the verse ends? You know, <laughs> and and it always works, and it it makes it sound so conversational and real. You know, mm -hmm. it makes it sound like, yeah. and I think people obviously really connect with that being you know a number one hit for this song, for instance. Right. Um, but I want I want to stick with Tim McGraw for a moment because he's an artist that has really um, latched on to, to your songs, um, had several hits, uh, with your music. Uh, he recorded my little girl, which was a, a top five country hit and a top 40 pop hit in 2006. Well, Tim McGraw is credited as a co-writer on that tune, but he doesn't necessarily claim to be a songwriter in the traditional sense. Um, talk about the unique nature of your collaboration on that song. Well, he had recorded several of my songs, and we became, you know, friends. And uh, he was doing a movie, the remake of the movie Flicka, and uh, he has three daughters. I have three children. I have two daughters and a son. But... And I'd written some father-daughter, father, you know, just, you know, parent-child songs right. just because that was natural for me. And, and he heard some of those, and they were looking for that, uh, you know, kind of an end title huh. that would be a, a, that would parallel the father-daughter relationship in the, in the movie flip. Yeah. And so his manager asked if I would be interested in, you know, doing it, which obviously I was, and so they actually flew me out to California. I went. I got to go to the movie set, you know, where they were filming in the Hollywood Hills, and you know, I got to meet Billy Bob Thornton and 
you know, the guy that was doing Friday Night Lights and Tim and Faith. I mean, it was right. it was really something, right. Right. you know, over two nights to seeing how a movie, you know, is painstakingly put together. Yeah. So through that, Tim and I talked about, you know, what he was looking for in terms of a song. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, so we kind of, he really helped fill in a lot of blanks about, you know, direction and concept. Right. And, you know, I was just filled with, information so that literally yeah. when i came back uh i mean on on the plane back i was like you know i mean the, the words were almost just spilling out because right. i'd read the script i'd read the book i'd seen it i'd had all that information yeah yeah well in 2008 tim mcgraw hit number two on the chart with your song let it go uh, and then reached number one with southern voice in 2009 uh, one of the things that strikes me about your songs is that they almost unfailingly have substance, um, you know, they're meaningful. They, they have a richness to them that is lacking in a lot of contemporary music. Let it go obviously is about kind of redemption and, and starting over. And, and to me, even though Southern voice is kind of on the surface, you could just hear it as kind of a feel good song, but you, you sneak in these weighty cultural references to Rosa Parks and William Faulkner and Martin Luther King and Billy Graham and, um, so even kind of on the ostensibly fun songs, you're still bringing this kind of gravity to them. Um, do you consciously as a songwriter feel like part of your mission is to create songs that have a, a moral, social kind of cultural significance to them? Well, uh, you know, the, the truth is I, I write from a very selfish place, uh, which is, I'm really trying to remind myself of, you know, uh, of, of important things. I mean, I'm, I can, I get as lost as anybody from one day to the next. Can't remember, you know, who I am or where I am or what I'm doing. <laughs> so I think I, I, you know, writing to me is almost therapeutic. I, it, it helps me kind of remember the important things. I mean, I, I do, I write a lot about redemption because I, I have to believe in redemption and I forget it from one day to the next. So I remind myself of, you know, the truth that's greater than me, uh, you know, and that I, you know, I have, I have been redeemed, um, you know, by Jesus. So, you know, I mean, I, I, I just, I just, I just have to put that down on paper. Yeah. Um, but I also, you know, I, I love history. I love knowing, kind of where we came from and uh yeah southern voices uh you know with bob DePiro, and you know it's it, it is really about just kind of the unique way southerners talk and we name checked you know every famous southerner there is but yeah you know the part of the south is you know is you you can't really speak of the south without speaking of dr king or rosa parks any more than you could speak of the south without mentioning you know, uh, Alabama football and, uh, you know, cicadas. I mean, it's, <laughs> right, uh, right. so it's, I just like the, you know, the multidimensional aspect of, you know, of who we are as yeah. people. And I think you have a particular eye for finding the richness in even kind of the everyday, uh, just injecting that sense of, of recognizing the profound, mm, you know, yeah. in the, in the routine, so to speak. Yeah. Um, and I ask you that last question in light of your song, Something Worth Leaving Behind, which was a hit for Leanne Womack. And it's a song sung from the perspective of someone who's basically saying, I might not go down in history for my great art, uh, 
Yeah. Um, but I want to leave a legacy of love. I think you probably will be remembered for your great art, but I get the sense from the content of your music and even from some of the things that you've said here today that that's not what's really most important to you. Well, I mean, it, it is, you know, I mean, I, all this glorious stuff that we do, it's, you know, it, it is, you know, I mean, it is going to turn to dust. We're going to turn to dust. Uh, so, you know, I don't really find that morbid or maudlin. I just think that's, you know, I mean, I just think that's reality. I don't, I, I, you know, for, I don't, my faith doesn't tell me that's where we end. You know, I believe this is, you know, we're just kind of pilgrims passing through, waiting on our great reward. Uh, so, um, but, you know, in, in, in the time that we have, you know, I mean, that song, it does talk about all the, you know, kind of the, 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 the melancholy of, uh, you know, Mark Mozart, you know, creating all this art, you know, and, and yeah. you know, dying, you know, in an unmarked grave, you right. know, it's just, it's, 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 I mean, it's heartbreaking. Some of the, you know, the, do you have to die to be famous? Some of those right. things in there. But I mean, the, the, the fact of the matter is, you know, it's, 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 you know, it's who we are as people, the lives that we build, you know, and in our children and our children's children, that yeah. really is, you know, th th that's what we will be remembered for. Yeah, yeah. And I think that really comes through, you know, in your art, that there is value beyond the art. Yeah. You know, and ironically, that's what makes it such good art, right. you know. Um, well, you're, you're making me feel better about myself, Scott. Thank <laughs> you. Uh, well, you've had the good fortune to write so many great songs, uh, such as God's Will, which Martina McBride had a hit with, um, you know, also the, the top 40 this is my life, which you co-wrote with Phil Vassar and he recorded. But if we started getting into to every hit Tom Douglas song, we'd be here for uh, for the mm -hmm. next month. So, uh, but I do want to ask you about one of your most uh, profound songs, "The House That Built Me," which you co-wrote with Alan Shamblin. Miranda Lambert took that song to number one. Uh, it went on to win the Song of the Year Award from the, the CMA, the Academy of Country Music, the Nashville Songwriters Association, nominated for a Grammy for Song of the Year. Huge smash hit. Um, but I understand that that one actually took a, a good long while to, to complete. What's the story behind the creation of that song? Alan Shamblin, the, the brilliant Alan Shamblin, and I were in uh, Sundance, uh, you know, eight years ago. Uh, with our families, Sundance has a relationship with the Bluebird here in Nashville where they send writers right. from Nashville out. And Alan came in the cafeteria one morning and uh, 
Uh, he said, I've been reading this article about how houses have memories. And uh, he said, you know, I was thinking, instead of writing a song about a house that you built, what if you wrote a song about the house that built me? And it's literally, as soon as Alan said that, you know, the hairs in the back of my neck stood up, you know, the, you know, the, the red light started flashing. Yeah. And I was like, Alan, that is, I mean, I knew that was profound when he said it. And I said, promise me, you will not utter those words to anybody else until we get back to Nashville. And uh, so we got back together and uh, we started writing the song. We wrote it, loved it, demoed it, turned it in. Everybody was like, yeah, that's, that's really good. And we were like, really good. This is the best song we've ever <laughs> right. written. Right. And, and they were like, okay. And so, you know, we got really no response, apathy, right. which wow. is really maddening. <laughs> but, um, so we assumed everybody was a moron and we, uh, we <laughs> sulked. And so, you know, six, eight months go by and Alan and I talk and said, let's take another look at that song. So we lay the lyrics out we look at it. We make a few changes. We demo it. We turn it in. Same response. Huh. You know, a couple of years go by, you know, again, Alan, there's something, there's something great here. We get, but we just, we hadn't figured it out. And so literally one morning we just put the lyrics down on a coffee table and said, let's start at the top and go down. And we made the song at that time in that third, fourth rewrite, we made it much simpler. We actually took some information out. Yeah. And we also, we did not have the line that maybe as important as the hook is, you know, if I can just come in, I swear I'll leave. Won't take nothing but a memory. Hmm. we didn't have that line yeah. so once we had that line that really set you know the house that built me yeah up and uh you know we demoed it turned it in and you know everybody flipped out then you so, got the response then we got for them <laughs> so you know they asked how do you get a song to miranda lambert where well, you work on it seven years you do four rewrites and then you try to get the song to blake shelton that's how you get a song <laughs> to miranda lambert right, right. easy <laughs> well, you've also had great success with Lady Annabellum, who had a number one hit with I Run To You in 2009, which you wrote with the band, and which won the CMA Single of the Year. The following year, you scored a top ten with Lady Annabellum's recording of Hello World, which you wrote with Tony Lane and David Lee. I mean, you've written so many fantastic songs as a collaborator, but I also think all the way back to Little Rock, which was your first and last hit that you wrote solo. You know, Nashville is not a town where many writers write alone anymore. But I'm wondering if you ever still find the time to do it or even feel the need to do it when you're obviously doing something very right as a collaborator. Well, Nashville is a collaborative town, no doubt about it. But um, I, I actually still do write a lot by myself. I, I you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a more distinctive song and those songs are hard to place. But, you know, I still, I mean, I've just finished two songs that I've written by myself that, I love each song that I write, so it, it almost it almost doesn't matter. I just love the process. I love the process more than I like the songs themselves. So Interesting. I understand that at one time you took some old Hank Williams lyrics that had not been set to music uh, and wrote melodies for them and, and basically recorded an album's worth of them just as this sort of passion project. Um, and I'm wondering... What was it you think that kind of made you say, I, I want to take on this this challenge? 
Well, uh, Sony, you know, has all the Hank Williams songs, and they have all these. They have a lot of un, un, you know, lyrics that Hank Williams wrote that were never put to music. And so I just, I, I kind of became, you know, crazy about Hank Williams. Uh, I guess you know, five, six, seven years ago, and uh, I knew that it really would never see the light of day because there's so many. Com- layers of complexity with you know the estate of Hank Williams, but yeah. I just you know th- there have been times where I, I you know when, when you I just you know I've kind of fallen in love with certain people, and I just fell in love with Hank Williams, and I really kind of through those unpublished lyrics and reading about his life, I really felt like I got to know him. Yeah, and I went to one of his homes in Georgiana, Alabama. Um, you know, and I, I've seen some of his memorabilia that he owned through Marty Stewart. I, you know, I just, I, Hank Williams, I think, truly is, you know, our hillbilly Shakespeare. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, really kind of set, he set the standard. I think it's kind of neat. To me, it's exciting to hear that you even did that because kind of like we were talking about, you spent that first time in Nashville kind of chasing the elusive mm-hmm. hit song. And, and you had this spiritual epiphany where you realize, man, I'm not, you know, I've got my priorities out of whack. Now, fast forward all these years, you are a very successful hit songwriter, but you still sort of say, I'm going to do this thing over here because I just want to, yeah. and I'm passionate about it. And this doesn't have anything to do with the next hit. And to sort of look back at that career and be like, you've nurtured and maintained that center of what you wanted to kind of get back to. So it's not like, Oh, you started getting the hits and then you forgot all about that. Right. You know, that shift in your thinking, it's like you still maintained that core of being true to, to the, the poetry of it and, and, and to yourself as an artist, which I think is, is very cool. Um, it, it seems to me that most truly great successful songwriters have about a, 10 or 12 year window, you know, where they have this run of, of creativity and success, but you have defied that statistic and have not shown any signs of, of slowing down now that you're more than 20 years into this consistent run of hits. Uh, George Strait hit the top 20 last year with, um, with your song, I got a car. You just had a huge hit with, um, Keith Urban and Eric Church's recording of raise them up. Where do you continue to to find that inspiration and to really just find new ideas? Well, you know, the again, I have I taught lyric writing at Belmont for five years. I'm taking a sabbatical, so I've thought a lot about the creative process and lyric writing, particularly, and I've studied a lot of songwriters. And I think you're right. It's I mean, it's amazing. Uh, you know, if you look at the the artists, some of which we've named earlier. The, the, the great body of their work is over really a very kind of a short period of time. It, right. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of weird really. Yeah. But so I think because I, you know, I was 41 when I really got my first country song recorded. So, yeah. I mean, I was, right. I was late to the game. So I always have felt like I was behind and, you know, I just, I just, I never wanted it to end. Um, 
And I think, oddly enough, um, you, you, it's, we have to be, as creators, we, well, I won't say we, I have to be process-driven. Right. Huh. The song is, is, is really, it's almost a byproduct. It's, mm-hmm. We put such emphasis on the song. But as creators, um, as writers, I think that's, I think that's, a, that's the wrong emphasis. Huh. It's like the song is almost, the song in a weird way is almost the enemy. Yeah, because you get so focused on the end result that you, uh, it it really uh, somehow thwarts and perverts the process, which is much more valuable. Right. The, the the thing about writers is we have to just keep writing. Yeah, and somebody has to worry about the song. The right. artist does. The publisher, right. you know, somebody else does. But we really shouldn't be that concerned about it. Huh. Uh, we have to be pretty pretty detached and cavalier about that. Yeah. I, I, that was a real breakthrough for me uh, in that you, it's, it's really the antithesis of what you would think. Yeah. Um, but that helps me just detach. And, yeah. uh, you know, I mean, you know, my process, my creative process is, you know, I got to exercise every day. I have to read the Bible every day. I have to read great fiction you know, I have to read three newspapers. Well, I mean, it's just that is my songwriting right. process. And if yeah. I do that, I have so many ideas that uh, I just love. By the way, I truly did uh, love and have been very inspired by your book, Southbound. Yeah. It's really great. Thanks. Thanks. Appreciate that. It's really terrific. Well, last year you received a really well-deserved honor when you were inducted into the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame in your very first year of eligibility. What did that mean to you, both personally and professionally? Well, you know, it's overwhelming, uh, uh, truly. It, 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 it's still hard to describe. You, I mean, you're so honored and thrilled on one hand, and the other hand, you feel like such a fraud that they've surely made a mistake um, <laughs> that... I don't know. It's, 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 you know, it's, it's very emotional. Uh, you know, you, you, we have a wonderful presentation, you know, at our new music city center with the, you know, the songwriters hall of fame has a, their own space there. And, you know, all those inducted in the hall of fame have, you know, brick pavers with their name and you know, a song associated with them in front of the music city center. It's a wonderful uh, display. Uh, so you see your name down there, you know, you got Johnny Cash and Chris Christopherson and Willie Nelson and, you know, Hank Williams. And it's just, and you, then you see your name and you think, I don't know, I'm sure there's, I don't know, you know, it's, I'm not really trying to be modest, but it's just, right. it truly is, it's, it's, it's overwhelming. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, I don't know, it's hard to put it into context. Uh, yeah. So I, I don't think I really can, and I, that's okay. I don't think I'm supposed to, but I appreciate you saying that. It was truly, you know, the greatest honor of my life. The other thing that, that's, that you have to be careful of, I think, as a writer is you got to be careful not to get too hung up on even that because it's got to be, you got to throw yourself back out. Yeah. You know, that, that happened on Sunday night in October 2014. Well, that Monday, you know, I, gotta, I have to write another song. So I don't, I'm very suspect. I love the awards and the recognition, number ones and yeah. trophies. I do. I mean, I love them. I just, I just, I don't have them up. I don't display them. I, mm-hmm. I, uh, 
I just, uh, I don't want to become a prisoner of that. Mm. Well, Tom, this has been awesome. Thank, Thank you so you. much for doing this Enjoy today. Enjoy being with you. Thank you for listening. To find out more about our guests, stream episodes, get a sneak peek at upcoming interviews, or to contact us with your feedback, visit songcraftshow.com. While you're there, sign up for our mailing list so you can stay up to date with everything that's happening in the Songcraft universe. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please like our Facebook page at facebook.com backslash songcraftshow. And if you enjoy what we're doing here at Songcraft, please take a moment to leave us a rating and review on iTunes, which truly helps potential listeners discover these conversations. And we look forward to getting together with you again for the next episode of Songcraft. Let's borrow from month to month Running out of credit And find a little cash on the radio Standing still, they're blowing past Numbers on cars going NASCAR fast What I wouldn't give for a slow down, don't you know?